Hello and welcome to this podcast from Conway Hall, London, where ethics matter. To find out more about our programme of talks and concerts, visit conwayhall.org.uk or find us on social media. In this online talk, author Brian Christian explains how as AI develops, we rapidly approach a collision between artificial intelligence and ethics. It is, uh, it is a great honour to be able to address uh, Conway Hall Ethical Society, um, all the way, in, in this case, from San Francisco. Um, so it's a great pleasure uh, to be speaking with you. I believe that the development of artificial intelligence, and in particular, um, as Deborah mentioned, machine learning systems, uh, which are systems trained by examples from humans, um, the development uh, of this technology in the last 10 years has brought us to a critical um, ethical juncture. But the story of the present juncture really begins, I would say, in the year 1923, uh, when a young boy named Walter Pitts uh, is running down the street in Detroit, Michigan, to escape um, a group of bullies that are attacking him. And he runs into the public library and he hides to take shelter. Um, he hides so well, in fact, that the library staff don't even notice he's there and he is locked inside the library for the night. He pulls a book off the shelf and he begins reading it and he reads it cover to cover. The book is a 2000 page treatise on formal logic by uh, Cambridge University's Bertrand Russell. And Walter Pitts decides to write Bertrand Russell a letter telling him how much he liked the book, but also that he's found several uh, mistakes in the text. He gets a letter back uh, postmarked from England several weeks later from Bertrand Russell saying, I have no idea who you are, but there is a place available for you at Cambridge if you'd like to do your doctorate working with me. Unfortunately, Walter Pitts has to decline Bertrand Russell's offer because at the time he is only 12 years old and in the seventh grade. Um, the story of Walter Pitts is really an incredible one. He um, grows up in a really troubled home and runs away from home at the age of 15 and moves to Chicago where he is for many years homeless, living on the streets and dropping into lectures at the University of Chicago. He ultimately befriends um, the great neurologist Warren McCulloch, who essentially becomes his foster father and takes him in uh, to his house to live with him. And the two of them begin, I think, what is one of the most kind of seminal and foundational collaborations um, in the history of artificial intelligence. Walter Pitts, this formerly homeless teenage logic prodigy, and Warren McCulloch, this um, celebrated mid-career uh, physiologist, neurophysiologist. Together, they start to think about the brain as a kind of logical machine. Could you build really simple um, kind of mathematical representations of neurons um, that would just add up their numerical inputs? And if they were greater than a certain number, they would output a number. If they were lower than that threshold, they'd output nothing. What they begin to realize is that even with these incredibly rudimentary models of actual human neurons, if you wired them together sufficiently, they could approximate any function that you could do using Boolean logic. The question, of course, was how to actually configure them to, to uh, 
to reach this promise. So this begins uh, really the story of what we now know as neural networks and machine learning. And to compress uh, this entire uh, history of the field into a single slide, essentially the intuitions that Walter Pitts and Warren McCulloch have in the early 1940s are exactly correct, but they are 70 years ahead of their time. Um, there are some celebrated milestones in the late 1950s where uh, Frank Rosenblatt is able to create what's known as the perceptron, which is a device based on this neural network um, architecture that can recognize basic shapes. Um, and this is shown to the press with great fanfare, only to have the field essentially give up on the idea in the 60s. Um, it's then rediscovered in the 80s and then abandoned again in the 90s and the 2000s. And then finally, it is rediscovered a third time, this time for good uh, in the year 2012. And I've tried to capture here as close as I can to the what I consider the exact moment um, that neural networks really came of age. Um, so this is at um, a computer vision conference in Florence in October of 2012. A young grad student from the University of Toronto named Alex Krasevsky um, demonstrates that he's been able to train a neural network um, on this task, which is image classification. Um, looking at what an image contains and trying to determine which of you know a thousand different categories that image actually belongs to. This had been a longstanding um, project uh, in the field of machine learning. And here we can see what I think is um, just an un undeniable proof that something major has changed in the last uh, 10 years. So you can see that from 2010 to 2017, um, the error rate of computer models on this task has fallen tenfold from 30% to now uh, significantly less than 2%. Um, and it is really this one year between 2011 and 2012 um, that everything changes essentially overnight. Um, now it is the case that these sorts of image recognition models um, are so good that they have become inextricably woven into, at this point, the very act of taking a photograph. So this is a slide from one of Apple's keynotes um, showing that there are in fact 11 different stages of machine learning that are operating behind the scenes every time you take a photograph now with a modern phone. It's calculating the auto exposure, the white balance, the focus, the noise reduction, the highlights, et cetera, et cetera all using this technology of neural networks that was first imagined in the 1940s. Um, and so we, we're now beginning to live in this uncanny world where uh, you, you literally cannot take a photograph without relying on your phone, having some comprehension of what it thinks it's seeing and how it thinks that should look. Now, this has some, I think, considerable ethical implications because a system this powerful that can learn seemingly anything based on the examples it's given uh, is then at the mercy of the examples on which it's taught. And there is a very famous example, which I think will be familiar to at least some of you, um, that happened in the year 2015, where the uh, software developer, Jackie Alcine, was using the brand new version of Google Photos that was using these deep convolutional neural networks to do automatic image captioning. And it was with some horror that he discovered 
that there was an album of photographs of himself and one of his friends that Google Photos had automatically captioned gorillas. Um, so there's the second, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this hanging a little bit. There's a second trend that has been going on for the same period of time, about a hundred years, that be, really begins in the 1920s, um, but accelerates um, incredibly in the last 20 years. So this is the use of statistical machine learning algorithms in these kind of critical societal decision-making pipelines, um, in particular in the criminal justice system. Um, statistical models being used to predict whether someone would um, behave uh, you know, law-abidingly if they were released early from prison. Uh, these have been in use. They were developed in the 1920s. They've been in use in the United States beginning in the 1930s. But as you can see, it is really only in the last several decades that their use becomes absolutely widespread. Um, and for me, the, the best illustration of this point comes from US Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, who um, a few years ago was visiting Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and was interviewed by the president, uh, Shirley Ann Jackson, who asked him, Couldn't, can you foresee a day where artificial intelligence becomes an inextricable part of courtroom fact-finding or even more controversially, judicial decision-making. And he responds, yes, I can foresee a day when artificial intelligence becomes a part of that process. That day is here. Um, and so this has started to raise alarm bells um, in kind of a different, in, in a different community. Um, so I'm thinking here of uh, reporters, for example, Julia Angwin from ProPublica and the Wall Street Journal, um, who did uh, this expose several years ago into the most commonly used software for criminal justice uh, risk assessment in the United States, showing that its error rates were wildly disparate uh, between black defendants and white defendants. Um, that if you looked at the rate of false positives to false negatives, um, it was dramatically different for black defendants and white defendants. So on both of these fronts, we, I think at this moment in history, stand at the intersection of these 200 year long trends that are now on this collision course. We are going through uh, an incredible acceleration in the capability of what machine learning systems can do. And we're also living through this maybe less celebrated, but even more important, slow percolation of these systems into the decision-making infrastructure of modern society. Um, they're a part of medicine, they're a part of uh, mortgages and credit lending, they're a part of the criminal justice system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're you know, dr increasingly driving the cars on our streets. And so there really is this question of, are these systems doing what we want? Now, this is not a new question by any means. Um, it goes back at least as far as 1960. The MIT cyberneticist Norbert Wiener has this great uh, essay uh, called Some of the Moral and Technical Consequences of Automation, which has this very famous passage. We all know the fable of the sorcerer's apprentice. Um, Disastrous results like this are to be expected, not merely in the world of fairy tales, but in the real world. 
Um, if we use to achieve our purposes, a mechanical agency with whose operation we cannot efficiently interfere once we have started it, then we had better be quite sure that the purpose put into the machine is the purpose which we really desire and not merely a colorful imitation of it. And this fear that he articulated, this concern uh, so many years ago, I think has really come of age in the last, let's say five years. Um, and we now know it as the alignment problem. Uh, are these machine learning systems really learning what we think they're learning? And are they going to behave the way that we expect once we actually um, put them into real world use? Um, so that is the subject of the book that I've just published that I've been working on for the last five years. Um, and it really feels to me that we are at the beginning of a transformative movement both within the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning and increasingly at the intersections between computer science and other fields like social science, public policy, ethics, law, et cetera. Um, and so as part of my research, I ended up interviewing ultimately about 100 different researchers on the front lines of this problem to try to tell the story of all of the reasons that we have for being concerned but also the tangible progress that's been made even just in the last several years, um, which has been, I think, equally breathtaking. So we don't have time to get into all 100 of those stories um, today, but I thought I would paint a little bit of a picture um, of what we can expect as we think about the frontier of the alignment problem and, and where things are today. So at a very, very rough level, uh, machine learning systems have two major components, uh, training data uh, and an objective function. So they have a set of examples um, and then they have some mathematically codified objective of what, what they are trying to learn from those examples. Um, and so we're gonna look at each side of the system in turn um, and talk a little bit about uh, what can go wrong and the ways in which people are trying to meet that challenge head on. So first is the training data. Um, as we've said, you know, a system that learns by example is at some level at the mercy of the examples on which it's taught. Um, and I think someone who articulates this very well is the head of AI at Tesla, Andre Karpathy, who, um, as he puts it, uh, the amount of sleep that he loses um, when he was doing a PhD, uh, all of his lost sleep was about models and algorithms. And these days, 75% uh, of his lost sleep is actually about the data sets on which these models and algorithms are trained. Um, we're seeing uh, something of a, a, a sea change in the way that people think about these data sets, uh, led by people like MIT's Joy Bolamwini and Microsoft Research and Google Brain's Timnit Gebru, who have done a lot of, I think, very groundbreaking research into face recognition systems, um, showing, for example, that uh, error rates, even um, these days uh, on commercial, you know, major commercial face detection, face recognition classification systems can be in some cases 10 times higher uh, error rates on people with darker skin types than people with lighter skin types. Um, and I think there is really this awakening um, into questioning the provenance of where, where do these data sets come from in the first place? 
So for example, the, one of the most widely used data sets in face recognition is called Labeled Faces in the Wild. And a couple of years ago, researchers from Michigan State started doing some digging into how this data set was assembled. And it was scraped from the web using newspaper articles. And so it has the bias that the newspaper articles of the time, in this case, it was the late 2000s, um, whatever, whatever people appeared in newspaper clippings, uh, those are the people that appear in the database. And they, did, they actually sat down and did an analysis. And it turned out that labeled faces in the wild was 77% male and 83% white. And the most uh, prevalent individual in that data set, which was again, whoever was in newspapers in the late 2000s, was the American president, George W. Bush. In fact, there were twice as many images of George W. Bush in the data set as they were all women of color combined. Okay, so this has started, I think, a real awakening um, in the industry. And again, using this example of labeled, labeled faces in the wild, uh, when the data set was first released in 2007, it had this you know, uh, peer review article that came out with it that said, um, this data set clearly has its own biases. For example, there aren't many images that occur under poor lighting conditions, and there aren't very many faces that are viewed from above and below. However, the range and diversity of pictures present is very large. Um, fast forward to uh, 2019. The same data set now appears with this giant red label that says, um, you know, warning, there are no children, no babies, very few people over 80, very few people uh, in, in a number of ethnic groups are represented at all, um, et cetera. And so this really shows um, uh, a change in, in the way that people are thinking about this, right? We, uh, 12 years ago, we were talking about diversity from the perspective of lighting and pose, and now we're thinking about it in demographic terms. Um, there's a lot of really encouraging work on how might you, after a model is trained, try to work out whether the data set might have been had some problem in it. Once you don't even have access to that data set anymore, you just have this AI system. Um, one of the people who's done, I think, some incredible work here is Chris Ola, who works at OpenAI. Um, and he has developed these visualization methods to inspect a model after it's already been built. Um, and to abridge a technical story, you can basically get the model to output um, a sort of maximally stimulating image for a particular image category. So here we have anemone fish, banana, parachute, screw, et cetera. That all looks reasonably normal. The anemone looks like an anemone, the parachute looks like a parachute. Um, and it is very revealing to have this system kind of daydream the, you know, the most banana banana or whatever it might be. You can also use this to detect bias and potential safety problems. So for example, um, if you ask it to output dumbbells, you see that these dumbbells come with uh, disembodied flexing arms attached, which is kind of surreal and um, makes a certain degree of sense. But this should alert us to the fact that our model uh, if it's only used to seeing dumbbells attached to flexing arms, might not recognize dumbbells on the ground, might not recognize them if they're on a rack. And this could, you know, you can imagine this kind of thing, if it were in a car, um, could be a potential safety issue. Um, these data set issues can be uh, extremely subtle and, and very sort of cross-cultural. One of the people who I think has done some very um, 
important work in this area is Bean Kim from Google. Um, she has a method which we can get into later in the Q&A if you want to know the technical details, but it's called TCAV, and it allows you to determine the importance of these human concepts to a model's categorization. Um, so you can see, you know, stripes are important in categorizing something as a zebra, uh, a white coat is important in categorizing someone as a doctor, etc. Um, she looked at some of the models that Google had built, and she found that the concept of something being red was intrinsic uh, and critically important in the model labeling something as a fire truck. Okay, well, that sounds reasonable, at least from my point of view coming from the US. Um, in the United Kingdom, many fire trucks are in fact red, um, but not in Australia, where fire trucks are white and neon yellow. So this indicates that this model would not be safe to deploy in a self-driving car, let's say, if you were going to be using it in Australia. Um, so these sorts of transparency interpretability methods are, I think, one of the most encouraging parts of that story. Um, this is Dario Amade from OpenAI, who leads their safety team there. Um, one of the data set issues that's most troubling for people who are thinking about kind of the farther future of AI is this problem that's called robustness to distributional shift or robustness to distributional change. Um, broadly speaking, if you train a model on one situation and then you deploy it into another situation, can the model have some sense of danger that it doesn't know what it's doing, right? If you train a model on white faces and then you deploy it on captioning um, albums of photos of black faces, shouldn't it know that it doesn't have a good reference point in its training data? Or if you deploy something on American fire trucks or you train it on American fire trucks, deploy it on Australian fire trucks, shouldn't it at some level realize that this distribution has shifted? Um, and that has been a critical problem in not just the bias and ethics side of the field, but also in the actual safety. So in 2018, there was a self-driving Uber car that killed a pedestrian in the city of Tempe, Arizona. And the uh, National Transportation Safety Board review uh, showed that one of the major contributing factors to this accident was that the model um, had a data set issue, which was the data set of pedestrians that it was trained on did not include jaywalkers. All of the pedestrians that it was categorizing during the training phase were people crossing at crosswalks and intersections. And so when it encountered someone crossing a road in the middle of the road, it didn't really know what to expect. It didn't have some sense that that was a place that people could even be. Um, there was also this problem where it had been trained specifically on images of pedestrians and images of cyclists. And this particular, um, the victim of this accident was a woman walking a bicycle. And so the model didn't have an easy category into, into which to, to categorize what it was seeing. Um, and there are many issues here uh, of you know, data set bias, et cetera, but one of them is this question of how do you recognize that you're out of your distribution? Um, this is, a, I think, a canonical uh, intrinsic human uh, ability to know when you are uncertain of something. There's been a huge push within the field of machine learning to develop models that have this capacity to know when they don't know. Um, one of the uh, 
one of these issues in machine learning is called the open category problem. Let's say you are developing a system to categorize different bugs. Well, there are many, many, many things in the world that are not bugs at all. And so even if you have built a system to categorize bugs, it should still have what's called an open category. If you show it a stick or a leaf uh, or an amoeba, it should know that it doesn't belong to any of the categories on which it has been designed. And this is uh, the center of the research of Tom Dietrich, a computer scientist at the University of Oregon. Um, and uh, here in the UK, um, Yaren Gall at the University of Oxford has been working on models of statistical uncertainty for these networks so that not only should a network be able to tell you what it thinks an image is, but it should have a precisely calibrated and an accurate um, probability associated with that. So the question is, having begun to develop these models of uncertainty of what a model doesn't know, what do you do? And here I think becomes the, here's where we transition from the actual computer science into the ethics. What do you do? What action do you take when you know that you don't know something? So this comes up in medical ethics. So there was a, a case in 2017 where um, the uh, University of Miami doctor Gregory Holt had a patient come in unconscious uh, with this tattoo that said, do not resuscitate. And this is almost a you know, textbook medical ethics example, but you never expect it to actually happen to you if you're a doctor. Um, you can't talk to this patient. You have no idea how serious they are about what they wrote in the tattoo. Was it a, was it a did they lose a bet? Does it sincerely express their, their deepest wishes? What do you do? And in particular, um, Holt advised his team to take this principle of not making an irrevocable action in the face of uncertainty. Um, and I think that's a really interesting ethical principle. Um, this is something that also comes up in uh, philosophy of law and legal ethics. So Cass Sunstein from Harvard has written a lot about um, the law, at least in the United States, has specific protections for what are so-called irreparable harm or irreversible harms. Um, how, do you, um, how do you know when you're in that situation where you have to make, in this case, a preliminary injunction versus just following the normal course of action? This is also um, a set of issues that are really coming to the forefront of uh, academic philosophy. Um, just a matter of months ago, uh, a new textbook came out um, by Will McCaskill of Oxford and his colleagues called Moral Uncertainty that deals with this question of um, how do you decide what actions to take ethically when you don't even know what ethical system is right? Are you a utilitarian? Are you a deontologist? Are you a virtue ethicist? What, what system, uh, not what system do you choose, but what action do you take knowing that you don't know which system of ethics to even believe in. Can you still make some kind of decision about how to practically act in the world? So I'm very intrigued to see um, this intersection between some of these questions that have existed in medicine, in the law, in academic philosophy, now really starting to come to the forefront as we are developing models that know they don't know, but they still need to make some kind of action. So the second area is um, 
rather than the, the actual data set on which the model is being trained. What is the objective function? Um, what is the goal of the system when it is given those examples? Um, this is something that has begun uh, coming up in a very acute way in the criminal justice arena. So uh, UC Berkeley computer scientist Moritz Hard has begun um, really scrutinizing the objective functions that are used in criminal justice system. So to even say of a model to predict, um, let's say the likelihood that a um, defendant will reoffend if they're released early from, from prison. Um, how would you how would you actually mathematically define fairness in this situation? So the classic definition is what's called group calibration, which says um, if you're given a score of eight out of 10 risk, then you should have the same probability of reoffending as someone else who has rated an eight out of 10, regardless of let's say your race or your gender. Um, and that has been kind of the, the classic definition of fairness that's been used by criminologists for several decades. Um, there are other uh, new um, statistical definitions that are being explored, for example, things like so-called equalized odds or equalized opportunity that look at the um, error rates, the false negatives, false positives. You know, so for for the people who are miscategorized by the model, are they are people of one ethnic group, let's say, more likely to be uh, false negatives or more likely to be false positives, um, and these sorts of definitions have been gaining prominence, which has then led to this computer science question of, can we build models that satisfy all of these equally desirable, equally intuitive mathematical definitions of fairness? Um, and people like John Kleinberg from Cornell, Alex Cholachova from Carnegie Mellon, Sam Corbett Davies from Stanford. Um, a number of people have been looking into this um, from the mathematics and statistics communities. And unfortunately, the answer is no. It turns out to actually be mathematically impossible to construct models that meet all of these seemingly equally desirable notions of fairness. So what do you do? Well, this is really a conversation that has to happen in the realm of public policy. We have to decide which of these metrics are more important than others. What are the trade-offs that we're willing to make? But I think there's an even bigger question here as we think about what the objective is of this prediction system. A lot of these systems are designed to um, ostensibly to predict reoffense. Will someone commit a crime? But we can't actually measure that. Instead, we can measure rearrest and reconviction. Um, but those things are meaningfully different. Um, this was something that came up in the 1930s during the very first use of this technology in the state of Illinois. You had conservative lawmakers, in this case, um, Elmer Schneckenberg of the state, um, uh, state house, arguing um, just because someone isn't caught uh, committing a crime, they then go into the data set as having made good. And the data, you know, the model trained on that data set will recommend releasing more people like that. Um, so that doesn't seem right. Uh, Nowadays, you're much more likely to get the same argument coming from the left, from progressives arguing, now, wait a minute, just because someone is wrongfully arrested and wrongfully convicted, they're going to get put into the data set as someone who did reoffend, and the model will recommend detaining more people like that. Um, and really, it's, this, it's the same argument that political valence is flipped. But um, this critical difference between uh, what the model 
is supposed to predict versus what it can actually measure, I think really comes to the forefront in the domain of criminal justice. There's also this question, uh, training data are often referred to as ground truth. And yet in many cases, they're really not the ground truth. Um, so this is Tesla's Andre Carpathy again. Um, in his grad student days, he was one of the human uh, guinea pigs, you could say, for image classification, where he was himself um, trying to determine, you know, is this picture, you know, which kind of dog breed is this or which kind of flower is this? And after painstakingly working on this for several weeks, he was able to get up to an accuracy of, I think, 95%. But 95% with regard to what? Not the truth, but the consensus, because the data set was built on what random other people on the internet said that something looked like. So the computer has no idea if something is, you know, a lily versus a tulip versus whatever. All it knows is that people on the internet clicked on it and said that it was, right? So that's not truth, that's consensus. Um, scholars like Microsoft's Kate Crawford have pointed out that this can become extremely problematic in um, cases where the model is trained on something, you know, almost purely subjective. So for example, the ImageNet data set um, on which some of these models were trained had not only things like containership and dust mite and whatever, but it also had these subjective categories like failure, loser, non-starter, unsuccessful person. And it contained images that people on the internet said looked like losers. Well, what does that mean? I mean, what, what are we training these models to do other than to represent the stereotypes and prejudices that exist in the culture? Um, I think it's really important to actually think about how the model is deployed. Um, in this case, there's um, models like Compass that are specifically designed to predict um, whether to detain someone pending their trial or not. Um, they're explicitly, the models explicitly say they are not to be used for sentencing. Um, sometimes they still are used for sentencing anyway. Um, and this, I think, suggests to us that we need something in machine learning close to what we have in medicine of, you know, important, take this, use only as directed, um, that I think we need something like that increasingly for machine learning as well. Um, there are, there's a difference between someone's risks and their needs. Um, the instrument that's used in the United States tries to distinguish this by using colors, red versus green. Um, red meaning they are, you know, likely to commit a crime, et cetera. Green saying something like, well, they have a drug dependency issue or they don't have a good family structure. Um, that's not necessarily a reason to jail them, but it indicates something about what, what they need from society. Um, and yet, despite putting it in green, uh, many judges just decide that this is all the more reason to lock someone up. So there's a really delicate thing here between kind of the actual user interface design and um, how the model gets used in practice. There's also, I think, this very critical question of once you build a predictive model, what real world intervention is that model designed to support? So if you predict that someone is at high likelihood um, to fail to appear in court if you release them, well, what do you do? Um, one answer is you can incarcerate that person, right? In that case, they, you can force them to appear by incarcerating them. Um, another solution might be send them an SMS message the morning of their court appointment, reminding them that they have a court appointment. And there's an increasing body of research that suggests that this is actually uh, perfectly effective. And so this is kind of 
outside the question of the predictive model itself, but is what, what do you do with that prediction? Um, and I think in some cases, those are the most critical ethical questions there are um, at that interface between the model itself and how that model plugs in to the existing system. Um, I'll just touch on this very briefly, but um, going back to this uh, Google Photos Gorillas example, the objective function that's used by a lot of image classification systems is something called cross entropy loss, uh, which basically assigns a constant penalty to any miscategorization. So if you miscategorize any X as any Y, you get one, you know, negative one point. But that doesn't really seem to fit our intuitions. Um, in fact, it's probably the case that there are certain miscategorizations that are one million fold uh, more uh, harmful to users, to society than others. Um, how do we capture that? And so um, a number of computer scientists, including Stuart Russell at Berkeley um, and others have said, maybe we should treat the uh, loss function, this loss matrix as itself a machine learning problem that before the machine learns how to categorize things, it first needs to learn what the human penalties are for making certain kinds of mistakes and not others. Um, and that's an open area of research. So thus far, um, we've been talking purely about a kind of system called supervised learning, where you show a number of examples one at a time and you try to categorize them or classify them. Um, I wanna say a few words here before we wrap up about what's called reinforcement learning, which is, um, about taking sequences of actions in order to gain some kind of points or reward. Um, and this is another main uh, category of machine learning system. It's what you might've seen, uh, you know, computers playing Atari, computers beating the world champion at Go. Um, it's what you see driving a lot of the revolution in robotics right now and self-driving cars. Um, and there is this incredible progress at systems that can learn to take these extended sequences of actions in order to get some kind of reward, whether it's a high score in an Atari game or maximize their probability of winning a game of Go, et cetera. Um, increasingly, and I think this is less appreciated, social media companies are using reinforcement learning to think about how their systems interact with people. So this is a white paper from Facebook talking about how, how they use um, actually the exact same model that was used for um, the Atari game playing to uh, fine-tune notifications that they send to human users. Um, so we are now entering this weird world where uh, in a very real sense, we are the Atari game that social media companies are learning to play. And so that I think prompts us to really ask this question of what is the reward function? What, what is the points in this you know, so-called video game? Um, and Will maximizing those quote unquote points really give us the behavior that we want? So this is the, this is the alignment problem in the reinforcement learning context. Can we create a scoreboard or a point system such that we incentivize the behavior that we really want to see? And there are some very well-known cases of failure in this. Um, this is a research project from OpenAI where they tried to train a boat uh, to win this boat racing game but it turns out there was a little harbor where you could just kind of drive in circles forever and accumulate these tiny little power-up points. And their program learned to drive in circles forever and get an infinite number of points, but it completely ignored the actual race that it was taking part of. Um, 
There are other uh, video games that have been a real challenge for researchers because they don't give enough points readily enough. This is one called Montezuma's Revenge. Um, and so how do you make progress in an environment where you don't really get very much feedback at all? Um, how can you still give the system a sense of whether it's going in the right direction or not? Um, this part of computer science is full of these really colorful cautionary tales. Um, one of my favorites comes from a group of Dutch researchers who were developing a virtual bicycle. Um, and they were trying to incentivize this bicycle to reach a goal. And so they decided to give it these little points every time it made forward progress toward the goal. Well, that sounds pretty good. What, what could go wrong? What, what was the loophole that the system learned to exploit? Well, it turns out they forgot to subtract points when you were going away from the goal. And so their system just learned to ride the bike in circles really, really, really fast because the 50% of the time that you're making progress towards the goal, you're getting rewarded. And it's easier to just go in circles than it is to actually get somewhere. Um, a similar cautionary tale comes from David Andre and Astro Teller uh, from Google X, who in some of their graduate work were looking at getting robots to play soccer. Um, and so they had included this little bonus reward for taking possession of the ball, because taking possession of the ball is kind of a necessary precursor to scoring points. They thought it would uh, kind of encourage the robot to make, you know, do the right thing. The problem was it's a lot easier to take possession of the goal, ball than it is to actually score a goal. And so their robots learned to just um, hover next to the ball and vibrate their paddles, just repeatedly taking possession of it and earning these kind of micro incentive rewards. So there is a long history in computer science of these minor disasters, some of them actually comic, on what happens when you kind of misspecify the reward function you want the system to, uh, to match. And so there has been this big movement in computer science of how do we get away from this problem of manually specifying this reward function? Um, one of the schools of thought here is that um, we should simply have our um, robotic systems imitate us. We shouldn't specify that there are these points and rewards in the environment. We should just have them imitate us. Um, there's a longstanding cognitive science into uh, how babies learn to imitate, and this appears to be something that is very hardwired into us evolutionarily. Um, it's also a major part of how um, AI functions these days. So every Tesla car comes equipped with something called shadow mode, where the whole time you're driving it, even if you have autopilot turned off, it is still pretending that it's driving the car and comparing all of the actions that it would have taken if it were in control to the way that you actually did drive it. And it's using that to kind of update itself and drive ever more like the way that you yourself drive. Um, this is a really uh, active area of research. Um, there are a lot of interesting pitfalls and ways that this can go wrong. And we can get into the computer science of that if you're curious. But there's also, I think, a really interesting uh, intersection here with ethical philosophy. Um, so there's a problem in philosophical ethics called possibilism versus actualism of uh, should you always take the action which is the absolute ethically best thing to do in that moment, um, even if it puts you in a position where you know that you will later fail. You know, you agree to do something for someone, but you know that you're gonna let them down. Should you still agree? Because it's the right thing to do to agree. Um, this is an active uh, question in ethical 
philosophy that's been going on since the 1970s. Um, also, the New Zealand ethical philosopher Rosalind Hursthouse has talked about um, virtue ethics as a kind of imitation um, and has talked about the, uh, the good and the bad of thinking about acting virtuously or ethically as a form of imitating these ethical, ethically great people. So here, I think the computer science of imitation and the ethics of imitation are intersecting in a really surprising and I think fertile way. Um, the last thing that I wanna mention on the computer science side is ways that systems, um, rather than being handed an explicit objective, rather than merely imitating us, can observe human behavior and try to make a guess as to what it is that humans are trying to accomplish. Uh, and this is known as inverse reinforcement learning. Um, so to make a long story short, um, you know, if you observe someone driving, this is uh, UC Berkeley's Peter Beale um, in his graduate work, he was creating this driving simulator um, and the computer system would observe him driving in this little toy world. And it was very difficult for the system to figure out how to imitate him, but it was very easy for the system to figure out what he was trying to do. It could easily identify that he wanted to avoid hitting other cars, that he wanted to move forward, that he wanted to you know, keep into the proper lane when possible, except when passing. Um, and this has been part of a you know, 20 year story of systems that are able to infer humans' objectives and humans' values, and then pursue those objectives themselves. Abil was part of a team at Stanford that taught these helicopters to do these incredible tricks by watching human RC pilots and figuring out even when the human pilots couldn't actually execute the trick, the computer could figure out what they were trying to do and, and do it better than the people could. Um, the next generation of students, people like Chelsea Finn, um, are doing some pretty amazing work in robotics where you can just move a robot and get it to start filling a dish rack full of dishes. The robot will figure out what it thinks you're trying to do and then can complete that action. Um, there's uh, a lot of really interesting work on cases where even if you can't demonstrate the behavior, um, as long as you recognize it when you see it, that alone might be enough. And so one of my favorite examples here is Paul Cristiano from OpenAI, Jan Leica from DeepMind, um, built a model where they would just show you video clips and say, which of these video clips of this robot wriggling around is slightly closer to what you wanna see? Um, and one of the examples that they used was doing a backflip. They said, it's easy to know a backflip when you see one, it's hard to do one, um, it's hard to specify numerically what a backflip looks like, but if you see it, you can identify it. And so they would show people these video clips initially of the robot just moving at random. They'd say, which of these looks more like a backflip? And as you start to make choices like, you know, left video, right video, right video, left video, it starts to build this model of what it thinks you think a backflip is. And then it gets better and better and better at doing that. And by the end, after just about an hour of providing this feedback, their virtual robot can do these kind of gymnastically beautiful backflips, tucking the leg to spin faster and sticking the landing. And to me, that is just a very, very encouraging sign that we can impart into these systems the things that we value, the things even when we can't demonstrate those things very reliably, we can't articulate them directly in numbers, um, the instructions of their experiment just said, 
look at the clips and select the one in which better things happen. And I think that is a beautifully open-ended description, right? And uh, there are many, many technical details here to overcome, but that really suggests to me a path forward. Um, and I think there's something very hopeful here. Um, but there's also this kind of lingering ethical question of, even if we have systems that can learn these very complex human values just by asking us, you know, which of these scenarios is better, um, that still leaves us with this fundamental question of who decides for whom, right? Who decides and who decides on behalf of whom? And, you know, for better or worse, that is one of the oldest ethical questions there is, and I think is, and is going to only be more important going forward. So to summarize, I think solving the alignment problem will be the defining human project of the coming decade. I think it's going to require a kind of interdisciplinary expertise at the boundary between computer science and all of these neighboring disciplines. Um, I think we have every reason to be concerned as well as encouraged. Um, this is in the philosopher Nick Bostrom's words, philosophy on a deadline. Um, we really do have to get this right and we have to get it right quickly because this is moving through society at a breathtaking rate. Um, but it really does feel to me that we are rising to that moment and there is an incredible movement um, mustering at the intersection of these issues. And to me, I think is one of the most important and one of the most exciting things that's happening um, in all of science. And I think if we get it right, um, it will also involve, I think, a profound and revelatory encounter with ourselves. Um, what are the values that we have? What are the norms that we want to uphold? And how do we want to do that? Um, my mind goes back to this radio address from Alan Turing in the 1950s, where he was talking about very early experiments, teaching a machine to do what he wanted. And he said, you know, it, it's always learning too slow or it's learning the wrong thing and that a tremendous amount of intervention is needed before it gets the right idea. And one of his co-panelists uh, interrupts him and says, but who was learning Turing, you or the machine? He replies, well, I suppose we both were. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Conway Hall is a registered charity, and as such, we are reliant on donations, now more than ever. You can learn more about our origins and history, join our mailing list, make a donation, or even become a member of the Ethical Society by visiting conwayhall.org.uk forward slash donation. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you.